Hello and welcome to the We Are History podcast. You forgot what it was called then for a second, <laughs> didn't you, John? I did. I'm getting on a bit. Um, <laughs> we Are History here. We're here to talk about things that interest us, amuse us, share some historical facts with you, reading a book so you don't have to. That's what are we doing idea. today, Angela? Today we are doing the Suez Crisis. This is something that's always been of great interest to me. I don't know why. I think I'm very interested in sort of British post-war politics and this was a watershed moment. Yep. Did you know much about the Suez Crisis before this? I sort of, in context of other things. So, yes, I did sort of, um, you know, reading about Prime Minister. Obviously, it was Anthony Eden. It was a big old moment for him. And... um, yeah, but I didn't know as much detail as I do now. I've read right. books. Good. Well, uh, we're talking about 1956. Try and imagine, if you can, a time when Britain had incompetent, arrogant, upper-class leadership. I can't imagine what that would it be It caused like, us enormous John. damage with our friends and allies, damaged our international reputation, mm. and all because of deluded ideas of grandeur from some old Etonians who imagined Britain was a world power and they were born to lead. Could never happen today, could John, never, could it? Could never, could never. There's little irony thing flashing on your uh, on your <laughs> iPad or whatever you listen to your podcasts on. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is sort of a familiar story throughout British history of, uh, you know, I'm the subtitle of my history book was 2,000 Years of Upper Class Idiots in Charge. Yeah. This was a classic moment when the arrogance and I'd say even the racism of the, oh, uh, of the upper class to think how dare the Egyptians be so uppity mm. um, caused Britain to... Uh, do great damage to its reputation and for many people to die in a war that needn't have happened. Yeah. Um, so where, should we start with where, like the background? Where are back, we talking about? We're background talking Egypt. Egypt. So background of Egypt. So Tutankhamun was buried under a pyramid. Yep. I think we're probably going back too far there. Let's go, yep. let's go uh, <laughs> skip a bit. So let's go back to uh, 1869. When the Suez Canal was opened. De Lesseps uh, was the uh, famous builder of French. the canal, French uh, guy. And then the idea of, so the Suez Canal is basically provides a, a route to, from Europe to the Indian Ocean, Indian Ocean yes. without having to go all the way around Africa. <laughs> exactly. So it's a long old way around. And for, for Britain, who's had ships going out to India all the time, this was... And uh, Australia, of course. And Australia a bit. Yeah, but um, yeah. it was the main trade route uh, to India. And the British were rather peeved that the French had gone ahead and built this. And they sulked. They didn't turn up to the opening ceremony. Ugh. They thought it was a rubbish canal. Where, where are the narrow boats? Where, where's 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 uh, Timothy West and Prudella Scales? Let's come to Birmingham to see proper canals. <laughs> exactly. No, there's no shopping trolleys chucked in this canal. <laughs> um, so there. But soon after, having sulked about the opening, um, Disraeli bought 44% of the shares in the uh, canal because it had been struggling financially. And suddenly Britain was a major shareholder of the Suez Canal. And... Uh, the British Empire, you know, it always been Cecil Rhodes' ambition that the that the pink on the map should stretch from Cape to Cairo, yeah. and uh, British presence in Egypt was uh, uh, very significant. And we we're sort of like a sort of colonial power in Egypt without sort of. So we had know, loads of troops. We there. had loads of troops there, and um, uh, um, we 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 were sort of the um, major military power in the region. So at the end of the First World War. Britain had uh, the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. Um, Britain had mandate in Palestine. So the two main regional powers uh, uh, were France uh, and Britain in that area. And um, the canals operated by 
it's the universal company of the Maritime Canal of Suez, right? So it's a yeah. th- this company that owns it. Britain's got forty four percent shares. France has got shares. Yeah. So which gives them power across the whole of that region. Yes. I mean, obviously, there was uh, the Egyptians were not wild about this. Yeah. Um, thousands of uh, Egyptians died in the building of the canal. It was uh, Egyptian labor that had built this thing. Yeah. Um, you know, tens of thousands of people died in the building of it. Um, and it was not. It, it was something that they felt. Uh, a certain patriotism about. Uh, and in 1936, the British um, withdrew their uh, troops to just the canal zone, uh, you know, uh, giving a certain amount of autonomy to the Egyptians. And the young foreign secretary who negotiated all this uh, was Anthony Eden. And his stamp, sorry, his face was put on an Egyptian stamp. They were so pleased with this handsome young uh, debonair <laughs> politician. Uh, he was uh, on all the letters being posted in Egypt. Uh, and really uh, still making it clear that yeah, Egypt's yeah. under Britain's thumb. Yeah, <laughs> but um, uh, the Egyptians liked Eden at this point. Little did he know that uh, this uh, little this little uh, episode blow up in his face and would be the demise of his political career and would be the thing for which he would always be remembered. So we're in 1936. Yeah. You've got the head of Egypt, if you like, the nom- is King Farouk, who has a nominated prime minister. Yes. Um, and I've just had a little example I found of how... Egypt was still under Britain's yeah. thumb is that um, despite this sort of nominal independence yeah. that was given to Egypt in the 20s, um, that in in 1942, King Farouk's prime minister, Britain yeah. decided wasn't anti-German enough for them. Right. It was during the Second World War right. and uh, wanted him to get rid of him. And King Farouk said, no, I'm not getting rid of him. He's a good prime minister, asserting right. his authority over the region. At which point the uh, British ambassador in Egypt simply called up some armed support and wrote a letter of abdication for the king. <laughs> okay. Gave it to him, said, you're going to sign this. At which point the king went, oh, okay, I'll get rid of my prime minister. Okay. So really the Brits were still in charge, even though they'd nominally... Yes, Yes, sort and this handed and, independence to Egypt, and this was the the sense that the Suez Canal was ours. Even after Indian independence, after the the Second World War, mm. Britain's trade with India declined, and that vital route to India became less important. But oil from the Middle East started to become more important, mm-hmm. and so the Suez Canal was very important for that for that lifeline of oil coming to the West. You can hear that noise. That is my dog drinking water. Oh, she's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> look, look, Tina the cockapoo is here with us again. Um, So in 1952, there was a military coup um, in Egypt and the monarchy was overthrown. And um, Nasser, who was the the big uh, bogey figure as far as the West were concerned in this story. That is Colonel Gamal Abdel Nasser, not... NASA, the space agency. Not NASA. That would have been weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's his first name? Gamal or something? It's Gamal Abdul Nasser. Okay, Gamal. I'm just going to say NASA. Uh, so he was an Arab nationalist, and he wanted uh, he wanted to see Egypt leading a, a united Arab nationalism against the old colonial powers and Israel, which of course had become a country uh, in the 1940s, uh, and there'd already been a war between the Israelis and the Arabs. So that was very much yeah. a, a, a powder keg, that part of the world, um, which it sort of remains, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and that's, uh, one, Eden had met Nasser uh, and sort of... Uh, uh, mm. Talked down to him. Because uh, well, Eden, Eden, I think it's worth saying, Eden is sort of uh, handsome. Yeah. Man. He was described as um, handsome but with a foul temper. Rab Butler, who was in the cabinet with him, yes. uh, described him as half mad baronet, half beautiful woman. Oh, bye, um, okay. W- w- uh, but he was um, sort of charismatic. 
yet NASA, when he met him, felt he was patronising. Oh, absolutely. He was very much sort of uh, upper class English. He did, Arabic. Yes, he did. He did uh, studied, uh, it studied, uh, he studied the language. Persian and Arabic at o Oxford. Oxford. I think so, yes. And um, he was uh, uh, married to Churchill's niece. Clarissa. Uh, uh, 20 he... years younger than him. Oh, really? Second marriage. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, I can feel you. I can feel you bristling here, Angela. But, uh... <laughs> well, no, I think it's interesting because Eden, his first... His son died in World War Two, right? And that led to the collapse of his first marriage, and that's when he sort of became depressed. And from then, really, his health problems began. I ah, think I see. Um, by the time, by the, time to, the crisis came round, he, he was, was off uh, his tits on amphetamines. He was, which didn't help the whole situation. So uh, yes, he, as foreign secretary, met NASA, patronised him enormously, talked yep. down to him, not allowed uh, NASA any time to answer back. NASA understood that. Uh, you know, Egypt wasn't top of uh, Britain's agenda. But uh, NASA said, uh, I know I'm not very important and Egypt is not very important, but I was hurt. The Russians sent me copies of secret correspondence with Washington. When I asked why, they said it was Egypt is a very important country. I know it's only flattery, but at least they take the trouble to pretend to treat us as equals. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and, and um, NASA and, had patronised. And humiliated, wasn't he? Didn't they turn up in, because um, the, the, NASA and his entourage turned up in uniform. And uh, all of Eden's people were in civilian dress and they felt that was a humiliation, that they hadn't been right. told to dress for dinner. Oh, I see. No, yeah, they, they basically treated them like servants. They yeah. Sort of, what they thought of as the, uh, the colonial, uh, yeah. the, the colonies. Nasser um, said he felt it made the British look like princes and the Egyptians like beggars. Right. Uh, so, you know, Manasseh was a proud man, a highly educated man, a very smart man. Mm -hmm. And uh, he had big plans uh, for Egypt. And he wanted to build the Aswan Dam on the Nile. And he wanted British funding to, to help uh, fund this. When he was refused, he had the idea of nationalizing the Suez Canal uh, and paying compensation to the shareholders. Now, you would think nationalizing something within your own country is, you know, a okay, reasonable... Okay. Well, Iran had nationalized their oil fields in 51, Okay, um, which I think... Uh, well, it eventually led to the overthrow of Mohammed Mossadegh because, uh, a bit later by the CIA okay. um, because they didn't like but, them but, nationalising their own. But, but, but I mean, Britain... <laughs> obviously, NASA had the idea from that. Britain in 1945 had nationalised its own railways and nationalised yeah. its uh, coal mines and its steel industry and its Yes, but it's Britain, John. I know. So all <laughs> Egypt was doing was what the, the, the British government had done, yeah. the, uh, the Labour government had done the decade before. But this was seen as an outrageous power grab by the Western powers. The way that NASA did it, he gave a two-hour speech. Um, and when uh, the word uh, Delesseps, you know, the, the builder of the Who's canal the was mentioned, it? when that was mentioned, that was the cue for... Uh, um, Egyptian soldiers to take control of the offices of the Suez Canal and all the key command posts. And he was able to announce there and then that he had taken the Suez Canal into Egyptian ownership and the people were cheering him and he was a national hero. Is it worth looking at um, sort of what got him to that point? You mentioned the Aswan Dam, yes. which would have brought prosperity to Egypt, yep. right? Would have upped their, uh, the amount of power they had, yeah. would have therefore upped their agriculture and their standing in the... And the Americans and the British have both refused yes. to fund it, to which he was upset it. about. And yeah. then... Or to uh, lend him the money, I think it was. Or to lend him the money, yeah. 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 Um, uh, which he assumed they would. And the reason that America... Because America was going to lend him the money. And the reason they didn't was because NASA said, well, I'll get... I, or one of Russia. NASA's ambassadors said, yeah. well, the Russians will give it to us if yeah. you don't. Yeah, so it's all part of the Cold War, and really. And so Dulles, the uh, Secretary mm. of State yeah. in America, went fine. 
we won't give it to you. Go yes. to the Russians then. Yes. You know? <laughs> and, um, yeah. So J Jeff, off. John Foster Dulles was a sort of key player in all this. He was, um, uh, they said that his most appropriately named sort of uh, diplomat of all time. It was <laughs> that the, 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 the verb went dull, duller, dullis. <laughs> uh, uh, but um, anyway, huge outrage in 1956 when NASA uh, announced he was nationalizing the Suez Canal. It was described as a thumb on our windpipe. That's how Eden described it, as if uh, the, the, the ability to shut off the oil that uh, flowed to the West was like a thumb on our windpipe. Now, for the first time, people could say, this war is all about oil. They <laughs> say it's about uh, uh, national uh, you know, national interest, but it was all, it was all about oil. And, they, you know, and Eden would go, yes, it is all about oil, and we need the oil, and it's Britain's oil, and it's Britain's canal, and you can't have it. When it first happened, there was a strong feeling in the summer that Britain would be right to intervene. Yeah. Uh, but uh, And there were those in the Conservative Party who thought that, you know, uh, the British Empire should continue to be expanded and that Egypt should be a British colony. And he was dealing with his own sort of uh, uh, Frexity tendency, who were well, like Eden the far was, right of the party. Was, you know, was um, quite racist against Arabs. Oh, yes. Wasn't he? And, yeah. and didn't he say at one point during this period that he wanted Nasser murdered? Oh, he was, he was it was he became obsessed with NASA. Yeah. He, I mean, the, 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 you have to set this in the backdrop of the generation who'd uh, come through the 30s and 40s and the, the overwhelming uh, psychology uh, of the uh, of the politicians who survived the war was we should have stopped Hitler earlier. We should not have let him invade the Rhineland. We should not have let him sort of uh, Angelus with, with Austria. Uh by you know, by appeasing Hitler, we were you know, you, as Churchill said, you feed a crocodile in the hope that it'll ease, eat you last. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so, you know, all the papers went mad about the uh, NASA Hitler analogy. It's Adolf NASA, you know, <laughs> swastika bands on the cartoons, little moustache on. You know, the imagery is there yeah. for a quick, easy uh, 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 cartoon, and. Um, Never mind that uh, NASA was just nationalising something in his own uh, backyard as Britain. And was done. more socialist than <laughs> <laughs> absolutely fascist. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, imagine if uh, Egypt had owned, owned shares in the you know GNER or uh, yeah, uh, you know that would that's the, the but, but nobody could make that sort of uh, equivocation between Britain and Egypt because they are dark skinned and we were white skinned. Yeah, what, what really was, yeah, superior. So, yeah, exactly. So it was seen as a huge slap in the face of national prestige of Britain and France, of course. But what the I think what the UK hadn't quite understood and what NASA did understand, and this is really what the whole Suez crisis is about, mm. is it's a shaking down of who are global powers and, yeah. and who are not. So Britain Br had been used to being... Yeah, for 200 years, Britain you know, had been a, a global power. global superpower. And then at the end of World War II, that started to diminish somewhat. Absolutely. Um, Britain had been one of the victors of the Second World War, still had an, you know, had, had an empire, mm -hmm. uh, still had many uh, colonies. Uh, but NASA understood that Britain wasn't a, wasn't a superpower. America understood that Britain was no longer a superpower. And th this was the painful moment when Britain came to realise it itself. Um, and, and had to realise that America had yeah, superseded it. Called all the shots. As a superpower. Yeah. And this, and, and, but, but I have to say, the handling of this could not have made it any worse. It was a, a series of cock-ups and arrogant miscalculations from start to finish. There are various other factors that may have made this disastrous sort of foreign policy uh, adventure avoidable. Uh, there's a guy called Selwyn Lloyd who has made foreign secretary. 
He'd never been abroad in his life except in war. And he said he didn't like foreigners. Ideal. Ideal uh, perfect. Let's have him. So Eden told him, go to the foreign office. And he didn't even know where it was. He didn't know where the foreign office No, he didn't. He was driving around Whitehall. He had to stop and ask a policeman <laughs> <laughs> the way, uh, way to the foreign office. That's deliciously ironic. It is. The it foreign is. secretary can't find right. the foreign office. So they reckon that if Macmillan had stayed at the foreign office, a crisis might have been uh, might have been avoided. Macmillan, uh, by this point, Harold Macmillan, Chancellor of the Exchequer. Chancellor of the Exchequer, future Prime Minister, uh, and the person who emerged from this uh, uh, as the next Prime Minister. So he would be the one who took over. Maybe that's a spoiler. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, there's a lot of thought that the advice he was giving Eden might have been deliberately bad because he wanted mm. to see Eden out and himself. Could in. you imagine somebody giving advice against their national what they interest. genuinely believe in and national interest in order to serve their own I cannot political imagine. ambitions? I can't, I can't imagine who imagine you were talking who could about. Do that. Now, bizarrely, the head of the CIA at this point was Miles Copeland, and that's mm. Stuart's dad from the police. From the police, yes. Yeah. So, so Miles Copeland was uh, very involved and had very close ties with NASA. And the Americans were watching this very carefully. John mm. Foster Dulles and Miles Copeland were the key players on their side. The cabinet at this point uh, had, uh, out of eighteen, the cabinet there were nine Etonians, sixteen of them from Oxbridge. Uh, and Selwyn Lloyd was looked down upon as a, a middle-class lawyer from Liverpool, as if Ugh. it was a terrible thing to be. <laughs> so uh, between July and October, there was various diplomatic manoeuvres, but Eden was dead set on military action. Mm. Uh, it's a bit like Thatcher after the Falklands War. After that slap in the face, the only thing that was going to save his skin was a military victory, and he became sort of obsessed with uh, uh, NASA, paranoid about it. And as you say, he was addicted to amphetamines and uh, he wasn't sleeping well and he was uh, becoming more and more erratic. So the Americans were really trying to push for a diplomatic resolution. Absolutely. Right? And I, there's a lovely story I found. Can I tell you this? Yeah. Because um, the British and French were reluctant. They they were more bellicose. They wanted yeah, they were to, to, to you know, in, in, sort it out military. military action. And Dulles, the Secretary of State in America, he came up with um, the idea of having an internationally governed cooperative of Suez Canal users. Okay. Right. So um, that that would be implemented in order to harmonise the region. Now, his idea uh, was to call it that. The co cooperative of Suez Canal users was the idea he <laughs> yes. came up with. Uh, but the Dutch foreign minister pointed out um, that Kazu, as it would have been, made you think in Kazu belly, which means the cause of war. Okay. So they rethought it. The Dutch foreign minister, he suggested Kasku um, instead, uh, but that was rejected because the Portuguese said it sounded like testicles <laughs> in their language. Um, so that was rejected. And the French also rejected it because it sounded like Casacool, uh, which means arse breaker. <laughs> so that was rejected. Then Selwyn Lloyd, the, the yes. foreign minister who doesn't yeah. know where the foreign office is, uh, he came up. He said, how about Askew? Um, but that was apparently still rude in Portuguese and Spanish. Um, <laughs> so they finally settled on the Suez Canal Users Association skewer. Okay. So even in their trying, <laughs> it was farcical. The oh, whole God. thing was farcical. <laughs> so they settled on bollocks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it's bizarre that these, the, you know, time was spent uh, negotiating all these things. and uh, But that was actually quite a constructive suggestion uh, by uh, John Foster Dulles. But, but no use because uh, Britain, as they say, was and France were set on uh, military action. And at this point, the appetite at home was for it, right? Uh, well, yes, although it diminished. You see, if he'd attacked in July, he might have... Uh, uh, had support but as time went by and people saw the international uh, reaction the Labour Party shifted its position to saying that there should only be military action 
uh, with the backing of the United Nations. And of course, you were never going to get that with China and Russia on the United Nations mm -hmm. Security Council. Um, so uh, Brit uh, uh, Labour cooled towards the idea of military action as the uh, summer passed into autumn. Um, and meanwhile, massive troop buildups were happening in Cyprus, which was a British colony nearby. Mm -hmm. Even though we had national service and uh, 750,000 troops and 10% of Britain's GDP was spent on defence, the British Army really wasn't set up for this sort of operation. Mm. The, uh, 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 we're not going post-war, are we? We're, we're, yeah, we're, we're still fighting the last war, really. Yeah, um, uh, we had to get the tanks onto the ships, and there was no there was no way of moving them around. They couldn't fit on uh, trains. They couldn't uh, wheel them along the uh, drive them along the motorways because they just chew up the tarmac. So they had to call up Pickford Removals, uh, who had specialist giant transporters, and move <laughs> the tanks with Hello, Pickfords. Pickfords. It was. Yes. They had to get Pickfords. I'd like to move some tanks. Yeah, that's, that's the only way they could get it. So um, the troop build-up was happening. Uh, it became clear that um, uh, Eden was dead set, and the French were dead set on military action. The French were paranoid uh, Algeria. Uh, about Algeria and that NASA was an inspiration to the Algerians, uh, Arab nationalists, mm. and so they were dead set on action. Uh, it was clear that um, um, it was all going to kick off and perhaps there we take a break. Yes. Uh, like, we'll talk like, about like, what happened next. What happened next. Oh, so it's a question of sport. So we're going to have a, <laughs> a short break to froth at the mouth about the decline of the British Empire. Stay tuned for the second half when troops will be a landing. Okay, we're talking about the Suez Crisis yes, in we real are. history. 1956, Conservative Prime Minister Anthony Eden uh, had been Prime Minister only for a year. Um, Not even a year, was it? I don't like, know. It's 1955. Oh, no, no, it was 55. Churchill was... finally retired. Yes, that's right. Uh, and was sort of dragged off to the nursing home. And, um, <laughs> Kicking and screaming. You no, know, Eden had been waiting 20 years to be Prime Minister. He'd been second in, second in command. He'd marry, take the trouble to marry Churchill's niece to stay in favour. And... Uh, uh, everyone expected the great things from uh, Eden, and he had a snap. And he was popular, right? He had a snap election and won a huge uh, majority, mm -hmm. um, and it looked like he would be in for a long time. And then along came along NASA. comes NASA, nationalizes uh, the Suez Canal, now, uh, and uh, presents Britain with a uh, problem, a, a massive problem, a sort of existential problem, actually, of post-war post-colonial Britain. Are we a global power? Are we a colonial power? And he, Britain was about to find out that the answer yeah. was no. So uh, the other thing I'd say to put this in context is that 1956 was an election year in yeah. America. So Eisenhower... Uh, Eisenhower's up for re-election. And, and he's, he's sort of going on a sort of wants to be elected with peace in mind. Right? Exactly, That's his yeah. Sort of and election promises. And, and, and the British, you know, uh, uh, image in America was one of a, a colonial power, the colonial mm. power that they had broken free from. So the American sort of foundation myth is thou shalt break free from the colonial oppressor. So for Britain to say, oi, colony, we're going to take that canal back, didn't play very well uh, in the American papers. I suppose the Americans, because it could have gone, I, I suppose they're worried about communism in the region. Absolutely. Um, infiltrating, but then they're weighing that up against their anti-colonial tendencies yeah yeah and so, i guess that anti-colonial tendencies won out in well this... in an election year i think that's probably yeah, yeah that's the, that's the, the the playbook that uh eisenhower you know, had, had to stick to yeah uh you, you can't go around backing military action from a colonial power in in, in north africa so no. what eden thought was never mind he was vaguely aware of all that but he said but if i present military action to the americans as a fait accompli then they'll just 
be obliged to support me. Like yeah. they were in World War well, yeah. Two, I suppose, but, but that a very different... Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> very were, different aggressor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, that was a fatal miscalculation. He's like, yes. I'm going to go ahead and then they'll have to back me. And yeah. uh, unfortunately, that's not how it played out for Eden. No. So the French are developing their own plan uh, with Israel uh, because Israel was prevented from using the canal and, then, and also was anxious about NASA acquiring Russian arms. They had this secret cunning plan. <laughs> they say, I have a cunning plan, said the French. And NASA had acquired Russian arms, right? With the yes. Czechoslovakia pact. Yes, He'd acquired yes. a lot of yes, Soviet arms. Yes. So we did have... Oh, we did have connections Because there, there'd Russians. been the... Was it the Baghdad pact and the tripartite yes. declaration? All that had happened, which meant that uh, Britain and France and the US had agreed not to supply the region with arms. But Absolutely. Russia hadn't signed any of those pacts. And so... Yeah. He had unlimited yes. I mean, basically, resources if, if, there, if, Brit really. if Britain weren't going to help him, then he was going to turn to the east. And yeah. uh, that's what happened. And it made everyone more paranoid in the Cold War and more convinced that this was the, the regional Hitler that had to be stopped. Mm. So uh, um, the secret cunning plan that the French came up with was that Israel would invade the Sinai Peninsula and the UK and France would pretend to be shocked yeah. and go, you most must both withdraw, both sides. And when they didn't, then uh, Britain and France would invade as pretend peacekeepers. And this was all secretly stitched up at Sevres. And, uh, of course, the American intelligence completely aware. What could possibly go wrong? What could possibly go so wrong? They had, uh, so the British, French and Israel had this meeting at Sevres um, where Eden apparently insisted nothing was written down. And it was written down. But it was written down. Yeah. And, it, and the American um, intelligence completely aware of the whole thing. Yeah. Yep. Although Eisenhower wasn't. I think it became Allegedly. aware later. Yeah, but, yeah, it but was, the time wasn't. No, but um, the, key, the key thing was that Eden did lie to Eisenhower during this yeah. period. And yeah. uh, Eisenhower never forgave him for that, for, for an ally. Mm. Um, there was a huge troop buildup on Cyprus and diplomatic games going on for months. Eden completely drugged up on amphetamines. And so they started by uh, dropping special balloons uh, were to be dropped on Egypt, urging them to overthrow NASA. These were so balloons can, with leaflets in. Yes, yeah, special. Sorry, yes, with leaflets. Uh, thousands and thousands of leaflets were designed, and they would drop from a thousand feet because they were so designed that they would, when the air pressure reached a certain point, they'd burst and scatter. So uh, the leaflets were spread over, spread all wide. over Egypt, and people would pick up these leaflets and read that they must overthrow. Unfortunately, they missed the design went wrong. Right. So these things popped at six feet off the ground. So, so just, <laughs> just a massive, a massive pile of leaflets just probably killed one passing Egyptian. Uh, Is it a bird? Is it a plane? It, no, it's a, a British propaganda leaflets. Uh, so they adjusted the weight of them and they put sandbags in these massive balloons. And so they popped. So it came to the, the it came to a pass where the British were actually dropping sand on the Sahara Desert. This was what was dreamed up in Whitehall. Um, but um, but at the end of October, Israel did invade Sinai. Uh, what a shock and a know, surprise for the British and French. They were commanded by Ariel Sharon. Who later future became prime, prime minister. Absolutely. And they easily overran the sort of deserty peninsula, of course. And Britain and France uh, said, you must cease fire, it says here. Oh, hang on. <laughs> Given away that I've uh, been pre-planned this. Um, <laughs> there was a march against the war in, in London. Uh, and surprisingly high number, given the uh, respect for the military. So, so by soon this after the war, point, the, the British had turned, hadn't they? They'd completely they'd gone, changed they'd, their they'd, mind. They'd, they'd gone against gone, they'd gone along military with action. The, the British people. Well, oh, I sorry. Know, oh, you're talking. I'm, I know. No, the British. The, the British people. No, I think I'd say most British people were still in favour of military. Oh, they were. Action, okay, fine. Uh, but there was a, a significant march against right. it. Um, uh, you have to understand that five, ten years after the war. 
or well, eleven years after the war, mm. as it were, for, to, to criticise the British Army was not something you did lightly. I suppose so so yeah. to march against troops, our troops was you know it was only thirty thousand uh, yeah. at uh, Trafalgar Square, which you know is nothing these days. Yeah. Um, but people were speaking out against it so much so that Eden wanted the BBC put under government control. And he threatened to cut the overseas budget by 20% to try and force So I read hand. that, yeah. So Eden felt that the BBC were being too neutral. Yes. Were showing both sides of the story. Exactly. And they should BBC have just... balance. At least that's a thing that's gone away. <laughs> yes. And, Laura Conner's um, book was the not concerns there. Concerns over that. Jesus. Yes. But um, uh, I read somewhere that the BBC, that, that it's sort of BBC law, and no one knows whether it's true, that troops are actually stationed uh, in a place off the Strand, okay. ready to invade Bush House. Really? And the BBC engineers at the time were given sledgehammers Blimey. so that if the troops did invade, they were to smash up all the equipment. My God, this is, yeah. that's amazing. That's, uh, that was in 1956. That was, all, that was in 1956, yeah. At this time, because they felt Eden was going to try and bring the BBC oh, under government control. Wow. He's, he's got, he'd got, sort of gone nuts. I yeah. Mean, that's the thing. Uh, and he'd only been prime minister a year. British warships bombed the shore. But the thing about the British at this point, they were so worried about international opinion that they were or killing American civilians that they were, they were always fighting this war with one hand tied behind their back. So mm. they they bombed the shore, but told to use smaller shells to reduce the casualties. Yeah. Uh, so this is sort of uh, sort of symptomatic of the whole way the exercise. So this is Britain's peacekeeping. Well, starting action. begin big, uh, 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 yes to try and sort of act against you know the uh, failure of the Egyptians okay. and the Israelis to uh, withdraw from the, uh, the the canal zone. Yeah. One Tory minister resigned. Uh, his name was Nutting. Uh, his son was bullied at Eton uh, by a boy, boy calling him a traitor, and he was pulled off by a young Jonathan Aitken. Ah, look at that. <laughs> and when, when Nutting grew up and Aitken was in trouble, Nutting represented him for free. That, that all dates ah. back to the, uh, the Suez Canal. Anyway, 1st of November, uh, Britain destroyed the Egyptian air force on the ground, 200 planes. Uh, NASA retaliated by sinking 40 ships in the canal, making it unnavigable. 40 ships filled with concrete. <laughs> Wow, that's going to be hard to move, isn't it? Yeah, I don't know how they get them back up again. Yeah, they did actually. But anyway, Britain bombers were instructed to turn back, though, from Cairo Airport in case there were US citizens there. And so when this all happened, uh, Eisenhower got on the phone to Eden and said, I can only presume that you have gone out of your mind. So he wasn't <laughs> holding back. Eisenhower and Dulles were livid. They were livid. So this was like... He's this, trying to win an election. He's trying to win. He's fighting on this first, first of November. This is like five days before the election. Yeah. And um, a, a war is starting off in the Middle East. Uh, which Eisenhower is against and has expressed his uh, opinion forcefully. And there's no, hello, Harold, how are you? Not Harold. Uh, <laughs> hello, Anthony, how are you? Uh, it was straight in. I can only presume you've gone out of your mind. Uh, and America, the UN, said with a heavy heart it could not support Britain, its staunchest allies. Um, and meanwhile, the Soviets were threatening to send troops to assist NASA. And this made, uh, obviously made Eisenhower worry that this could be the trigger for World War III. Well, Russia threatened rocket attacks, didn't you, on London and Paris? Yeah, like so this they... was, this was a, you know, a real flashpoint in the Cold War. Yeah. So this unnecessary military action about a canal that we could have carried on using anyway mm -hmm. suddenly was uh, precipitating nuclear war with threatened uh, attacks on uh, Western capitals. So the Americans hit back with financial pressure and the pound was falling and the US was selling UK bonds mm -hmm. And Britain was refused help from the IMF. And the Chancellor, Harold Macmillan, uh, he is thought to have exaggerated the threat to the British economy. And, you know, there's a theory that he wanted to see Eden humiliated so he could take so the top So he did his job. bit in... Uh... Yeah, in, 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 in saying that we cannot sustain, we cannot continue in this vein. The British economy is going to crash and burn mm -hmm. because of the uh, failure of the Americans to support us. And in fact, there was... 
because there were worries about fuel supplies, wasn't there? Yeah, there so there was rationing was brought in. Petrol rationing yeah. was brought in. So at home, yeah. people were feeling the effect of yeah. what was happening yeah. um, in Egypt at the time. Absolutely. 4th of November, three days after the uh, destruction of the Egyptian Air Force, Russia sent tanks into Hungary, yeah. uh, brutally rep repressing uh, so there the uprising there. was a revolt there. that turned, that got... Yeah. Big, quickly. Yeah, so that was like a, 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 a brutal, uh, you know, action by the Soviets. But Britain could hardly go, and even America could hardly go, hey, uh, Russia. Don't do, uh, that don't do that while we're doing this. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> if they, we, we almost gave permission to the Soviets to um, to act outside of their borders because we were doing the same. Yeah. Um, 6th of November, British Marines stormed the beaches at Port Said, the north end of the canal, and at the end of a difficult uh, fighting day, the soldiers were confident of success and they reckon they could have secured the entire length of the canal zone when suddenly they got the order to cease fire. So they'd invaded, they'd secured the beachhead and they were all set to, to, to accomplish all their targets yep. and they're told, pull out, stop. And this was done because of Eden losing his nerve at the last moment. He didn't consult with the French, he didn't tell the Israelis, he just uh, unilaterally pulled out and the whole thing collapsed. The soldiers must have been... They were very cross. cross. <laughs> yeah, um, we're almost, we've risked life and limb. We're almost yeah, there and now yeah, we're withdrawing. Exactly. Us. So, you know, uh, Eden had been drugged up and jittery throughout and he kept changing his mind and now he panicked. So Churchill said he would never have dared launch military action, but once begun, I would not have dared to stop. And no one could Ooh. quite believe it, you know. Um, if you got, the, the, the thing is, if you're going to be a bastard, be a complete bastard. You yeah, know? And, finish uh, the job. Yeah, and I think that somebody said it with stronger language at at the at that time, you know, with stronger swear words. Um, uh, but, you know, this isn't just a, a you know, gung-ho adventure. There were deaths, you know, 21 British deaths, mm -hmm. 10 French deaths. American reported at the time put Egyptian deaths around 1,000, and there may have been many more than that. So suddenly the thing had, the whole thing had collapsed. Britain were pulling out, and NASA is a, is a national hero. Eisenhower was re-elected. The Hungarians were helpless. And overnight, Britain was utterly humiliated and discredited. So Eden went from being this sort of uh, promising, enigmatic, charismatic, new, promising prime, new prime minister with a great majority. Uh, overnight, he was utterly discredited. Uh, all other British and French holdings in Egypt were nationalised. And the canal uh, reopened the following year. And you have to remember that Britain in the 1950s still had enormous international uh, credit for standing alone against Hitler in 1940. Yeah. Britain had this sort of moral authority uh, after the Second World War that uh, um, France had collapsed, the Americans were not yet in the war, but Britain had decided to... Had Hitler stood up must, against Hitler. Stood up against Hitler. And this gave Britain a moral authority that evaporated in 1956. Yeah. Um, Eden pissed it up the wall, basically. Yeah. And, and uh, lied to the House of Commons. Lied to the House of Commons, lied to Eisenhower... Uh, pretended that, uh, that he didn't know because he didn't said know to about the, the I've got the quote plan. from what he said to the House of Commons. So this is the deal was made at Sevres, as we know, with the Israelis and the French. And um, he said to the House of Commons, "I want to say this on the question of foreknowledge and to say it quite bluntly to the House that there was no foreknowledge that Israel would attack Egypt. There was not. Well, that's just a straightforward lie. Straightforward uh, lie because the proof then came out. Yeah, and it was there was it was issued uh, and it was printed afterwards. Um, Christmas Day, the Egyptians blew up the statue of Deleseps at the entrance of the canal. That's how you built it? Yep. First attempt, it just made him lean a bit. <laughs> and then they had to come it's back like, and. just looks a bit pissed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So they had to come back with some more and blow it up a bit more, and it fell face forwards uh, and crashed into, the, uh, crashed into the ground. Eden took a holiday um, and he went for a break at 
uh, Ian Fleming's house in Jamaica. The guy who wrote James Bond. Wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice to live in the sort of world <laughs> where you do the biggest fuck up, people die, and you get a Jamaican holiday? Well, yeah, a holiday with the James Bond writer. <laughs> It's a different world, isn't it? It was. The circles they moved in. Uh, Daily Mirror offered a holiday for two in Jamaica for anyone who could solve the Suez crisis. Uh, The new year he resigned. It was put down to ill health, but widely believed he was forced out by senior cabinet ministers. And there's even a rumour that, uh, or there was some suggestion that Eisenhower insisted that uh, he could not work with Eden and that he must go. Right. Uh, which suggests that, you know, the idea of an American president deciding who is the British Prime Minister. But this was a, a, a shocking uh, readjustment for all these senior conservatives who still imagined Britain was this superpower mm. uh, that had won the Second World War. Um, Harold Macmillan emerged from the so-called Magic Circle. It was called the Magic Circle. Uh, of the government? Of the senior cabinet. ministers of, who huh? were consulted. You know, he beat Darren Brown and Paul Daniels. Because <laughs> um, um, it was... You like it? Not a lot. <laughs> so there was no election of a Tory leader back then. It was just uh, somebody went to the Queen and went, you might invite Mr. Macmillan to come and be your Prime Minister. And that was how it was done back yeah. then. And I think yeah. it was the last one, actually. I think Macmillan was the last time that the Queen was advised by senior Conservatives who to pick. After that, I think Heath in 65 was uh, elected, elected yeah. um, by, by MPs. But yes, it was just a name uh, recommended to the Queen. And so 1956 became the year of the angry young men, of uh, the John Osborne's and the, yep. you know, uh, Keith Wardhouse's, uh, a sort of cultural rebellion that the, Britain was ruled by an out of touch elite. And of course, that carried on through, well, to the present day, but through yeah. to the 60s, you had, yeah. you know, you had yeah. all sorts of yeah. sudden sort of pushback against this political elite that had, had it so good. They had, but they won the subsequent election three years later, even though they'd completely been the architects of this cock up. Uh, even though this international disaster was caused by the Tories, they still won the subsequent I election. I feel like you're making some sort of. Uh... Uh, a sort political of point comparison with the, I can't think what it is John uh, well I think there was a sense in 1956 that Labour had been insufficiently patriotic during the Suez crisis right. and that damaged them three years later it has to be said that if Britain had struck in July maybe public opinion might have supported Eden but by the end of October it seemed like a fait accompli and a decision that he had made irrespective of the evidence um, presumably if he had attacked in July he still wouldn't have had Eisenhower's support and... no I think um, uh, but he, what, he, what he did so badly was he launched an invasion then double crossed the British army double crossed his French uh, allies double crossed yeah. the Americans um, but to that point I think Britain sort of came to its sense and realised it would never go to war about oil again there would never again be a Middle Eastern adventure. Uh, never again be an illegal invasion yeah. of... <laughs> of, a, of, a, of a foreign territory. So the, overall, the entire operation was a disaster from start to finish. It was based on false assumptions, uh, based on racist imperialist attitudes, yeah. really. Uh, dishonest, paranoid leadership and all the goodwill that Britain had built up in 1940 evaporated in a moment. And Britain was humiliated and reduced in power and prestige as a result of a appalling conservative leadership. Does that sound familiar, Angela? Hmm, I couldn't possibly say, John. <laughs> um, so that's Suez Crisis, nineteen fifty-six, and, and it's sort of the beginning of America as the superpower it is today. Well, I'd say, I'd say, sort of, the Second World War did that really, but the realization that it was not—I think at the end of the Second World War, it was like the big two and a half. You know, Britain was still sort of uh, uh, right in there with you know at Yalta and 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 the, yeah. the, the post-war conferences. But after fifty-six, there was no pretending that Britain was anything other than a sort of. Uh, satellite state of the of the yeah. of the American alliance 
um, and was not in any sense an equal partner yeah. and could not make its own decisions in, in foreign policy, you know, in terms of um, actions against uh, Russia or in the Middle East. Uh, and that's sort of been the way ever since, really. Yeah. Um, anything else you were burning to say about the Suez in 1956 that you read or no I think got? that's uh, that's pretty much covered what I've read I, I would say the books that I read yes. were I read an excellent book um, called Blood and Sand by Alex von Tunzelman oh yes and She's um, very good. it's quite a hefty tone but the audiobook of it is available on Audible and that I've listened to that in the car and oh, that's a good way of doing it very interesting I read uh, Suez 1956 by Barry Turner which is a good hearty and very thorough book uh, and um I think there's an episode of The Crown about uh, the Suez there Crisis. There is indeed. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And there's also, I mean, I, I'm just going to mention Andrew Marr's book, History yeah. of Modern Britain, which yeah. is a good chapter on Suez, but it's also quite a good overview of yeah, this whole period. Sort of 20th century um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, politics and, and what was going on. Yeah, and the other thing to say is that, you know, uh, the, the young men fighting this disastrous campaign were conscripted there was not they were not volunteers like no. the modern british army these were kids uh from national uh, service, national service uh, which ended sort of uh, a few years about five years later mm. uh because i think it was um the idea of serving the british army was sort of rather discredited by this adventure and so you know we live in a far less militaristic society ever since thank god thank god for that Thank you for listening to Thank you for We listening Are History. To, um, go on to iTunes or wherever you listen to us and rate us. Five stars, please. That would be nice. If you could. And, and, and tell your tell friends. Tell your friends. Get them to subscribe. They don't even have to listen. Just get them to the press the subscribe button. Tell them that if they can't get to sleep, then put on We Are History with Angela Barnes and John O'Farrell. They'll be out in no time. We'll catch you next time. Thank you very much for listening.